Chapter 32 of Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by David Cummings. Pieces of Hate and Other Enthusiasms by Haywood Brune. Chapter 32 Art for Argument's Sake. All editors are divided into two parts. In one group are those who think that anybody who can make a good bomb can undoubtedly fashion a great sonnet. The members of the other class believe that if a man loves his country, he is necessarily well fitted to be a book reviewer. As a matter of fact, new terminology is coming into the business of criticism. A few years ago, the critic who was displeased with a book called it sensational or sentimental or something like that. Today, he would voice his disapproval by writing pro-German or Bolshevist. Authors are no longer evaluated in terms of aesthetics, but rather from the point of view of political economy. Indeed, today we have hardly such a thing as good writers and bad writers. They have become instead either sound or dangerous. A sound author is one with whose views you are in agreement. So tightly are the lines drawn that the criticism of the leading members of each side can be accurately predicted in advance. Show me the cover of a war novel and let me observe that it is called the great folly, and I will guarantee to foreshadow with a high degree of accuracy just what the critic of the New York Times will say about it, and also the critic of the Liberator. Even if it happened to be called the glory of shrapnel, the guessing would be just as easy. The manner in which anybody says anything now, whether in prose, verse, music, or painting, is entirely secondary in the minds of all critical publications. Reviewers look for motives. Symphonies are dismissed as seditious, and lyrics are closely scanned to see whether or not their rhythms are calculated to upset the established order without due recourse to the ballot. Nor has this particular reviewer any intention of suggesting that such activity is entirely vain and fanciful. He remembers that only a month ago he began a thrilling adventure story called The Lost Peach Pit, only to discover, when he was half through, that it was a tract in favor of a higher import duty on potash. A vivid novel about the war by John Dos Passos has been issued under the title Three Soldiers. One of the chief characters was a creative musician who broke under the rigor of army discipline, which was repugnant to him. Nobody who wrote about the book undertook to discuss whether or not the author had painted a persuasive picture of the struggle in the soul of a credible man. Instead, they argued as to just what proportion of men in the American army were discontented, and the final critical verdict is being withheld until statistics are available as to how many of them were musicians. Those who disliked the book did not speak of Mr. Dos Passos as either a realist or a romanticist. They simply called him a traitor and let it go at that. 
The enthusiasts on the other side neglected to say anything about his style because they needed the space to suggest that he ought to be the next candidate for the president from the Socialist Party. Speaking as a native-born American, Brooklyn, 1888, who once voted for a socialist for membership in the Board of Aldermen, the writer must admit that he has found the radical solidarity of critical approval or dissent more trying than that of the conservatives. Again and again he has found, in The Liberator and elsewhere, able young men who ought to know better praising novels for no reason on earth except that they were radical. If the novelist said that life in a Middle Western town was dreary and evil, he was bound to be praised by the socialist reviewers. On the other hand, any author who found in this same Middle West a community or an individual not hopelessly stunted in mind and in morals was immediately scourged as a viciously sentimental observer who had probably been one of the group which fixed upon the nomination of President Harding late at night behind the locked doors of a little room in a big hotel. The enthusiasm of the radical critics extends not only to rebels against existing governmental principles and moral conventions, but to all those who dare to write in any new manner. There seems to be a certain confusion whereby free verse is held to be a movement in the direction of free speech. Novels which begin in the middle and work first forward and then back win favor as blows against the bourgeois idea that a straight line is the shortest distance between two points. Of course, the radical author can do almost anything the conservative does and still retain the admiration of his fellows by dint of a very small amount of tact. Rhapsodies on love will be damned as sentimental if the author has been injudicious enough to allow his characters to marry, but he can retain exactly the same language if he is careful to add a footnote that nothing is contemplated except the freest of free unions. A few works are praised by both sides because each finds a different interpretation for the same set of facts. Thus, the authors of Dulcie were surprised to find themselves warmly greeted in one of the socialist dailies as young men who had struck a blow for government ownership of all essential industries merely because they had introduced a big businessman into their play and for the purposes of comic relief had made him a fool. Class consciousness has become so accurate that it extends even beyond the realms of literature and drama into the field of sports. The recent Battle of the Century eventually simmered down into the minds of many as a struggle between the forces of reaction and revolution. It was known before the fight that Carpentier would wear a flowered silk bathrobe into the ring, while Dempsey would be clad in an old red sweater. How could symbolism be more perfect? Anybody who believed that Carpentier's right would be good enough to win was immediately set down as a profiteer in munitions who would undoubtedly welcome the outbreak of another war. Likewise, it was unsafe to express the opinion that Dempsey's infighting might be too much for the Frenchman, 
lest one be identified with the little willful group of pacifists who impeded the progress of the war. Eventually, the startling revelation was made by the reporter of a morning newspaper that he had seen Carpentier smelling a rose. After that, any belief in the invader's prowess laid whoever expressed it open to the charge not only of aristocracy, but of degeneracy as well. After Dempsey's blows wore down his opponent and defeated him, it was generally felt by his supporters that the eight-hour day was safe and that the open shop would never be generally accepted in America. The only encouraging feature in the increasingly sharp feeling of class consciousness among critics is a growing frankness. Reviewers are willing to admit now that they think so-and-so's novel is an indifferent piece of work because he speaks ill of conscription, and they believe in it. A year or so ago, they would have pretended that they did not like it because the author split some infinitives. One of the frankest writing men we ever met is the editor of a socialist newspaper. Whenever there's a big strike, he explained to me, I always tell the man who goes out on the story, never see a striker hit a scab. Always see the scab hit the striker. You see, he went on, there are seven or eight other newspapers in town who will see it just the other way, and I've got to keep the balance straight. There used to be a practice somewhat similar to this among baseball umpires. Whenever the man behind the plate felt that he had called a bad ball a strike, he would bide his time until the next good one came over, and that he would call a ball. The practice was known as evening up, and it was no longer considered efficient workmanship. That is, not among umpires. The radical editor was not in the least abashed when I quoted to him the remark of a man who said that he always read his paper with great interest because he invariably found the editorial opinions in the news and the news on the editorial page. That's just what I'm trying to do, he exclaimed delightedly. I'm not trying to give people the news, I'm trying to make new socialists every day. It is to be feared that even those writers who have the opportunity to be more deliberate than the journalists have been struck with the idea that by words they can shape the world a little closer to the heart's desire. Throughout the war we were told so constantly that battles could be decided and ships built and wars decided by the force of propaganda that every man with a portable typewriter in his suitcase began to think of it as a baton. There was a day when a novelist was satisfied if he could capture a little slice of life and get it between the covers of his book. Now everybody writes to shake the world. The smell of propaganda is unmistakable. With literature in its present state of mind, critics cannot be expected to watch and wait for the great American novel or the great American play. Instead, they look for the book which made the tariff possible, or the play which ended the steel strike. End of chapter 32